Well, welcome all. So this is Ezekiel 34, 17 through 31. It's the second half of the chapter. God the faithful shepherd feeds his flock. We'll start the memory verse, eh? Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Father, we just pray that that will be true for us, that we will be relying on the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, as you work in us and through us to accomplish your work and your will in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. So, last week, it was an interesting passage to read. God is rebuking the foolish shepherds. Now, remember, they represent both the spiritual and civil leaders. And we saw the differences between the foolish shepherds and God, who is the good shepherd. And also the devastating effects of poor and selfish leadership and how it negatively affects the people underneath them that they have responsibility for. And God promises to deal with the ungodly leaders who scatter their flock for gain while he himself will gather the flock. Now, in the second half of the chapter, we're going to see God speaking to his flock, which represents the rest of the people. And we're going to see that the sheep themselves have responsibility as to how they treat each other. And this is really important. We as sheep have, or people, have responsibility as to how we treat each other. God says that he would judge those proud, fat and strong sheep that bully and harass the weaker sheep and cause them to wander off. And if you think about what Cain said to God in Genesis chapter 4 verse 9, Am I my brother's keeper? You know, God says to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he says, Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is, Well, yes, you are. You are responsible for him. So, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are responsible to help each other and to build each other up. Now, as usual, what we find in these passages where God is disciplining and revealing the sin of the nation, God gives them yet another promise. And some of these promises that we're going to read today are being fulfilled in our lifetime. But their complete fulfillment will be in the millennial reign when, guess what, King David, he will be ruling as the prince or leader of Israel. Jesus will be the king, but underneath him, David, will be their prince, and he will be one of the shepherds of the nation of Israel. So, again, the outline for Ezekiel chapter 34, the first half, verses 1 to 16, God speaks to the foolish shepherds and warns them. That's the leaders. And the second half, God is speaking to the sheep. That is just the ordinary, everyday people. And that's verses 17 through 31. So let's read verses 17 through 31. In Ezekiel chapter 34. And as for you, O my flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats. Is it too little for you to have eaten up the good pasture? 
that you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pasture, and to have drunk the clear waters, that you must foul the residue with your feet. And as for my flock, they eat what you have trampled with your feet, and they drink what you have fouled with your feet. Therefore thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean sheep. Because you have pushed with side and shoulder, butted all the weak ones with your horns, and scattered them abroad, therefore I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Verse 25 I will make a covenant of peace with them, and cause wild beasts to cease from the land, and they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season, that is the rain, and there shall be showers of blessing. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord, when I have broken the bands of their yoke, and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. And they shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely and no one shall make them afraid. I will raise up for them a garden of renown, and they shall no longer be consumed with hunger in the land, nor bear the shame of the Gentiles any more. Thus they shall know that I, the Lord their God, am with them. And they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord God. You are my flock, the flock of my pasture. You are men, and I am your God, says the Lord God. So there's a lot in this. It's really interesting. I got a lot from this as I was studying it. So we'll take the first three verses, verse 17 through 19, trampling the pasture and muddying the water. And as for you, O my flock, says the Lord God, behold, I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats. Is it too little for you to have eaten up the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pasture, and to have drunk the clear waters, that you must foul the residue with your feet. And as for my flock, they eat what you have trampled with your feet, and they drink what you have fouled with your feet. So in verse 17 it says, As for you, O my flock. So again, God has finished addressing the shepherds or leaders in verses 1 to 16, and now there's this transition. He's now talking to the sheep. He's talking to the ordinary people. So why does God refer to us as sheep? Why in this whole shepherd sheep thing, why are we the sheep? Well, here's my summary. Because sheep are really quite senseless animals, dumb animals who don't tend to appreciate the loving concern of their shepherd. They are prone to wander off and need someone to seek after them and bring them back into the fold. And you can see that parable. The story in Matthew 18, 12-14 of seeking the lost sheep, 
leaving the 99. They need help to find good food and water. They can't defend themselves. And they like to be around other believers or other sheep, and that is for good or for worse. So, you know, it's this whole peer pressure thing. Now, Isaiah 53 verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, a reminder of Jesus, our good shepherd, who brings us back into the fold. And verse 17, as for you, you know, you got the kids there and one's just being told off and you turn to the next kid. As for you, you know, <laughs> you hear the tone of voice here. God has just finished rebuking the foolish shepherds in no uncertain terms, but now God rebukes some of the flock who are also in rebellion against him and who are also hurting the other sheep. So this shows that the bad teaching and bad example of the foolish shepherds does not excuse the sins of the flock. Each sheep must decide who they will listen to, who they will follow, and they are responsible for their own choices. And Taylor says, The flock will in fact be purified, not only of its bad leadership, but also of its bad members. Now, an application here. Am I an oppressor, a victim, or both? And a quote from David Guzik. Modern Western culture often divides the world into two categories, oppressors and victims. Great attention is given to the sins and crimes of the oppressors, and often rightly so. Yet we err when we think there are never circumstances when one thought to be a victim can also have responsibility for their own sins and failings before God. So, Many people say, I can't help the way I am because of what someone did to me previously. Right? This is a really dangerous lie. My choices are the only things I can call my own. They're mine. It's my choice. Not yours. It's my choice. And one of the greatest gifts that God has given us is free choice. The ability to think independently of others and make up our own minds. So, Why is this really, really important? Why is this freedom of choice so precious? Well, because without it, there would be no love. We would only be robots, you know, programmed to do and say certain things with no choice. So while free choice is scary because we can make the wrong choices and hurt ourselves and others, it's ultimately a blessing because it gives us the opportunity to choose to show genuine love to God and to others, and that, in the end, will win out. So, an example of the victim-oppressor, like not just a victim or an oppressor, but both, right? An example of the victim-oppressor could be someone who was bullied, hurt, or abused by someone, but chooses not to forgive that person. They therefore remain angry and become, themselves, a bully, hurtful, and abusive. Their choice not to forgive and move on is their own choice. They alone are responsible for that choice and the consequences that follow. And there was a case where there was sexual abuse and the guy said, well, my dad abused me when I was a kid and I can't help it. It's not my fault. And it was a case where he would not repent. He would not move on. He would not ask for forgiveness. He would not say sorry. So we couldn't do anything more with that. So, verse 17, between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats. 
So back in Bible times, it was customary for shepherds to have both sheep and goats in their flocks. So you might be thinking, oh, God's going to judge between the sheep and the goats. Actually, no. That's a different situation. In Matthew 25, 31 through 46, we have the sheep and goat judgment. And there, the sheep represent believers and the goats unbelievers. But here, it's just a general flock with your sheep and your goats and your rams all mixed in. And God is going to judge here in this passage between sheep and sheep. It's just a way of referring to all the people. It's not referring to the judgment at the end of the tribulation. So, verse 18, Is it too little for you to have eaten up the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pasture? So the picture here is that the bigger, fatter and stronger sheep ate their own share of the pasture, they got what they wanted, but then proceeded to trample down the remainder of the grass to make it unfit for the animal to consume. And thus the other sheep go hungry or are forced to eat grass that has been trampled down. And it's a picture of the unnecessary suffering and neglect caused by the stronger sheep who are basically bullying the weaker sheep and not allowing them to enjoy the blessings given by God to all of the sheep. And the quote from David Guzik, In acting as if the pasture belonged to them, these renegade sheep, I like that, renegade sheep, spoiled it for others. This shows that damage can be done to the flock not only by the shepherd, but also by sheep who are not considerate of the other sheep and who treat the pasture as if it were theirs to do with as they pleased. And then verse 18 continues this picture, this illustration. It says, To have drunk of the clear waters that you may foul the residue with your feet. So the bullies didn't just enjoy what was theirs, their share of what was given, but also made life miserable for those around them. You know, they have a good drink with clean water, and then what do they do? They stamp around in the pond or the stream or whatever the water source is and make it all muddy, and so the people can't drink clean water anymore. They get their clean water, but then they make it dirty for the rest of them. And in verse 19, it keeps going, they eat what you have trampled with your feet, and they drink what you have fouled with your feet. So, again, this describes the misery of God's flock at the time in Israel, right? God had blessed them, but they were not able to enjoy those blessings because other sheep had abused or ruined them. And now, who do these fatter sheep represent? Well, those with greater influence, wealth, physical strength, knowledge, or position. And you will see this in verses 20 and 23 as we go. And these people were inconsiderate and selfish toward others. So, yes, this is talking about the nation of Israel, but we can apply this to the local church and also the family unit. If my attitude is that this family unit, like, you know, dad, mum and the kids, or this church, this local church, exists only for my benefit, then I will take from it what I want and make life hard for everyone else. I'll be selfish. I'll make sure that I get what I want, I'm happy, but I don't care about anyone else if they suffer or not. I will not allow the rest of the family to enjoy or benefit from those communal blessings and relationships that God gives us. So it only takes one inconsiderate or selfish person to make life difficult for the rest in any family or local church. Now, all of us can easily be this difficult to get along with person. It's that simple. And I think all of us have been that difficult to get along with person at some stage, yeah? What do we do when we're like that? When we're proud and we have selfish ambition? We want what we want? Well, 
we repent. Demonstrate humility and submission to each other, and that's the only solution. And 1 Peter 5.5 gives us the answer to this. It says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. So that's the answer to this sheep versus sheep, you know, bullying and abuse and all that kind of stuff. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. That's the secret to unity and harmony. In verse 19, they eat what you have trampled. And here's a spiritual application to the church. The poor misled, and this is a quote from Trapp, the poor misled and muzzled people are glad to eat such as they can catch. They are fed with traditions, legendary fables, indulgences, avowed pilgrimages, penances. So basically, they are getting watered down, false teaching. It's a poor diet, and they're not growing. They have stunted growth. And that's an example of where the pastor or the leaders in the church can trample the grass and give them grass that is not good for them. And verses 20 to 24, God will protect the sheep from rebellious sheep. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I myself judge between the fat and the lean sheep, because you have pushed with side and shoulder, butted all the weak ones with your horns, and scattered them abroad. Therefore I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. So, verse 20, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean sheep. God will bring justice to those inconsiderate and selfish sheep. Of course, if we repent, it would be all right. 21. Because you have pushed with side and shoulder, butted all the weak ones with your horns, and scattered them abroad. And so this is what happens when the selfish and inconsiderate sheep are allowed to continue in their selfish and sinful ways. People will leave the church, families will break up, and the weaker sheep are made to leave the pasture altogether. You know, when it says, scattered them abroad. Wright says, It's not only the leaders who are at fault, but within the flock there are those who are concerned only with their own interests and not content with this, are deliberately spoiling life for others. David Guzik says, It is a story told in many churches. Those who consider themselves to be mature, knowledgeable believers cause great trouble. In Ezekiel's picture, they are the fat sheep that spoil the pasture and the waters for the other sheep. Their disruptions to the peace of God's flock spoil the food for other sheep and even make them scatter. So this is a danger of spiritual pride. And I've seen this before. It's happened a few years ago, even in this church, where people have knowledge but not love. And this is satanic. Where did this come from? It comes from Satan, right? Selfish ambition. He had knowledge, but he didn't have love. We need to watch we don't fall into this prideful trap. Consider the warning Paul gives to the Corinthian church. Now, the issue he's addressing at the time is food offered to idols. But there's a principle behind his response to the people then. And that is, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so, in dealing with the issue of meat sacrificed to idols, food sacrificed to idols, that wasn't the main issue. The main issue was, how are you dealing with this? So I'm going to read 
First Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Uh, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. That's my title for this. Now, about food offered to idols. Now, we can change this to whatever we want, whatever issue we're facing in the church at the time, right? It says, of course we know that all of us possess knowledge concerning these matters, yet mere knowledge causes people to be puffed up, to bear themselves loftily and be proud. That means arrogant. But love, affection and goodwill and benevolence edifies and builds up and encourages one to grow to his full stature, and we could say his full stature in Christ. Verse 2, if anyone imagines that he has come to know and understand much of divine things without love, he does not yet perceive and recognize and understand as strongly and clearly, nor has he become intimately acquainted with anything as he ought or as is necessary. So, basically what that's saying in verse 2, if you think you have come to know something and yet you don't have love, your knowledge is actually very limited. It says, nor has he become intimately acquainted with anything, anything, as he ought or as is necessary. Verse 3, it continues, but if one loves God truly with affectionate reverence, prompt obedience and grateful recognition of his blessing, he is known by God, recognized as worthy of his intimacy and love, and he is owned by him. So, knowledge puffs up, makes us proud, but love builds up. It's the correct application of that knowledge. In verse 21, the sheep are pushing and butting each other. Well, the strong sheep are pushing and butting the other sheep out of the way. So in Jeremiah 34, verse 8 to 11, I won't read it, but it's an example of what this looked like in Ezekiel's time, so we can relate to what's happening. In the Old Testament, it says that a Hebrew could be a slave for a maximum of six years. So if a Hebrew fell into poverty, a Jew, an Israelite, fell into poverty, instead of like having nothing to eat, they could go into a family and they'd be fed and clothed and given someone to live. And after six years, they could go free and off they go again, have a new start. However, what was happening was the rich Jews would not let the poor Jews who were their slaves go after six years. They were holding on to them and forcing them to keep being slaves. So this is an abuse of power that would have left the Hebrew slaves feeling really disenchanted and disillusioned with their life as one of God's chosen people. You know, here I am, one of God's chosen people, and my own people are forcing me to be a slave when I should be free. So as believers, we can apply this. We must be so careful that we don't coerce or manipulate people to do things they don't want to do. And we can use guilt trips. You know, if you love God or if you're a good Christian, then you should do this. Uh, we can use flattery, insincere praise. We can use the promise of promotion or prominence as a reward for service. And also, by sheer force of will, expecting or demanding that people do certain jobs in the church or give a certain amount of money. In effect, all these things are treating other believers as slaves. All right, moving on to verse 22. So therefore I will save my flock and they shall no longer be a prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep. So God has previously promised to rescue his flock from the unfaithful shepherds and now God promises the same. He's going to rescue his flock, the persecuted sheep, 
from their fellow but controlling, dominating and abusive sheep. And it's interesting, the effect in both situations is the same. The flock is scattered, whether it's the shepherds or it's the abusive sheep, the controlling sheep. The flock is scattered, they become a prey to wild animals. And we looked at this last week. This illustration of believers becoming isolated and becoming wolf or lion food. Satan will eat us up. Now, we move on to verse 23 and 24. This is the start of God giving the nation of Israel amazing promises. And these are repeated in several places in the Scriptures in the Old Testament. So verses 23 and 24, and the title for this bit is, David will be a prince among the Israelites. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. So verse 23, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. So again, these are new covenant promises. In the church, we think of the new covenant. What do we think of? Well, the Holy Spirit living in us, and that's true. But there's more to the new covenant than just what we experience in the church. The new covenant is primarily given to Israel. One of the things that God promises to Israel is that they would go back into the land of Israel. And here, David, King David from back in Samuel and that, he would be, again, their prince. Not their king, but their prince. When he was around on the earth, someone who truly cared for their well-being, and he was a good shepherd. God is going to put him back in that position of leadership. And a quote from Water and Hop, What started out as an oracle of judgment ends in an oracle of salvation that speaks directly about Judah's future. And Feinberg says, The full realization of the prediction of verse 22 must be in the future, in Messiah's reign. How much is to be accomplished in the Messiah's kingdom on earth? Is it any wonder that the godly in Israel have always looked with longing and faith to that hour of blessed consummation that is the second coming of Christ? So the promises for Israel are all going to be fulfilled when Jesus comes back and he will reign on the earth for a thousand years. From the temple in Jerusalem, verse 24, I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David, a prince among them. And, you know, some people say, well, hang on, David died a long time ago. How's he going to be their prince? Well, Old Testament believers will resurrect after Jesus comes back to the earth with his church at the end of the tribulation. And so the resurrected, glorified David in his you know, glorified body, he will be serving his king and his God in this honorable position as a reward for his faithful service while living on this earth in his mortal body. Now, what was David's testimony? I want to just go into this a bit. Acts 13.22 from the NLT, it says, But God removed Saul, remember he was unfaithful to God and disobedient, and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to. And that comes from 1 Samuel 13, 14. That's what God said about him. To Samuel, I have found David, a son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to. 
And so this promise that Israel's greatest and most godly king, known as the sweet psalmist of Israel, will one day be a prince and shepherd over Israel again. And it's repeated in several places. So again, this will come to pass when Jesus returns at his second coming at the end of the seven-year tribulation to rule on the earth for a thousand years. Now, additional scriptures which say exactly the same thing, that David will be the prince, Isaiah 55, 3-4, and Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. I'm going to read two others, because they're only short. Ezekiel 37, 25. They will live in the land I gave my servant Jacob, the land where their ancestors lived, that is, the land of Israel. They and their children and their grandchildren after them will live there forever, generation after generation, and my servant David will be their prince forever. So, This has all got to do with the Israelites coming back into the land, the land of Canaan, and being ruled by God as their king, and David will be a prince over them. Hosea chapter 3 verse 5, Afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. And there's a hint, right? In the latter days. So this is a promise given to Israel that would be fulfilled in the end times. And finally in verse 24, it says, My servant David, a prince. So David is not described as a king, but as a prince, which is a lesser office. Jesus will be the king who rules over the whole world from Israel, but David will have a limited authority ruling over the nation of Israel. And in verses 25 through 30, This is, again, about what it's going to be like in the millennium when Jesus comes back and rules and reigns on the earth. So I've titled this, God will bless and protect his people. He says, I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land, and they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing and will cause showers to come down in the season. There shall be showers of blessing. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord, when I have broken the bands of the yoke, and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. And they shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the land devour them. But they shall dwell safely, and no one shall make them afraid. I will raise up for them a garden of renown, and they shall no longer be consumed with hunger in the land, nor bear the shame of the Gentiles any more. Thus they shall know that I, the Lord, their God, am with them, and they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord God. What's one of the things that people are saying these days? It's called replacement theology. Ah, God's done with Israel. No, he hasn't. All these promises are telling us that God has not done with Israel. These cannot be allegorized and just say that, uh, you know, it replies to the church. No, God will physically bring Israel back into the land. It's already happening. And, as we're going to see, the greening of Israel, you know, being a garden of renown where much fruit is produced, much produce, it's already happening. So, verse 25, I will make a covenant of peace with them. Another promise connected to the new covenant And again, its complete and final fulfillment will be during when? The Millennial Kingdom, yeah? When Jesus rules on the earth for a thousand years. 
And a couple of other verses that parallel this. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. It says, The Lord will mediate between the nations and will settle international disputes. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. And again, what's this all about? God is going to bring peace. True peace. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Not just in Israel, but in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord our righteousness. Yeah? You know who that is? Jesus Christ, yeah? So when's this going to happen? In his day. Yeah? The days are coming. The king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness. So in his days, Judah will be saved. So it's basically when he comes back. So remember, we come back with him. We're going to see all this. We're going to experience all this. We're going to be ruling and reigning with him alongside the resurrected Old Testament saints. So verse 25, a covenant of peace. And this is a quote from Bloch. The description offers one of the fullest explanations of the Hebrew notion of shalom, or peace. The term obviously signifies much more than the absence of hostility or tension or war. It speaks of wholeness, harmony, fulfillment, humans at peace with their environment and with God. So it's just not that there's no war anymore, but there's going to be a harmony that will be felt. Verse 25 through 29, a couple of the main points here. They will dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods, cause wild beasts to cease in the land. There will be showers of blessing. The earth shall yield her increase. I will raise up for them a garden of renown, and they shall no longer be consumed with hunger in the land. This is the glorious millennial reign of Jesus Christ. We have a lot to look forward to. It's going to be beautiful. The ecology that includes the animals and the plants and the weather systems of planet Earth will be transformed. And we don't know what it's going to be like. All we know and experience in this world is earthquakes and droughts and famines and floods and millions of dying of hunger every year. But God is going to turn Israel and probably the rest of the world into a garden of renown. It's going to look like the Garden of Eden did before Adam sinned. It's going to be just abundantly producing all this food for all the people. No one's going to go hungry. It's going to be awesome. And you can see different verses there. Hosea chapter 2 verse 22, Joel 3 verse 18, and Zechariah 8 12. Now again, God has already started this transformation of the land of Israel. It started around 1948 when the people started coming in. They started to transform the land, get rid of the swamps and plant the forests. Now Israel is like the fruit and vegetable basket for Europe. It's amazing what comes out of that land. Now a couple of scriptures which parallel this, just to show this is not a one-off thing, but this is a subject that is repeatedly spoken of in the Old Testament. Amos 9, 13-15 Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. <laughs> you know what that means? The plowman, the person who's plowing, is going to overtake the reaper, which is the person who's harvesting the crops, which means there's so much crop, 
that they can't harvest it fast enough before the ploughman comes to sow the next lot of seed. It's a beautiful picture of abundance. And the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them, and shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord God. And that was Amos 9, 13 through 15. Now Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 12. And another parallel passage you can read in your own time is Isaiah 65, verses 20 to 25. But this one here says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So just that first bit. What's happened here? The ecology has changed. The animals are no longer going to eat meat. They're going to eat plants just like they were in the original creation. Everything was herbivore. No carnivores. No omnivores. Just plants. And the ferociousness of these big wild animals is going to be gone. The kids can play with them. No poisonous snakes anymore. Pretty cool, eh? I'm looking forward to that, not having to kill snakes. And then verse 10, it talks about Jesus. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. Of course, that's Israel. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, and from Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now, in verse 11 there it says, He will gather them together for the second time. When was the first time? After the Babylonian invasion, right? They went to Babylon, they came back. But that wasn't all around the world, that was just Babylon. They came back from literally just Babylon. What happened in AD 70? The Jews rebelled against the Romans, and in AD 70 they were defeated. Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, as Jesus predicted. But the Romans didn't send them to just one place, they were sold as slaves all over the place, and they were literally dispersed all over the world. And now what's happening in our generation? They've been scattered for 2,000 years. They're all starting to come back. The nation of Israel has been established. So we're seeing the start of this promise, the start of the fulfillment of this promise already in our own day. And a quote from Taylor. The context is the consummation of the present age and the opening of the new age. The consummation means the finishing. The scattered flock have been gathered to their own land in an eschatological act of deliverance, not without 
its element of judgment, united and purified, they now enter upon the supernatural golden age of peace and prosperity. So Israel is going to have all the Old Testament promises that were given to Abraham and Jacob and that. They will all be fulfilled in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. It'll be their golden age of peace and prosperity. No, not just for them, but for the whole world. And verse 28, No longer a prey for the nations. They shall dwell safely, and no one shall make them afraid. Now, you look at what's happening today. Israel is definitely afraid. They have lots of enemies. But when Jesus comes back at his second coming, and he rules the earth with an iron rod, he will have destroyed the armies of the world, and there will be no more war and no more reason to fear. And in verse 30, Thus they shall know that I, the Lord their God, am with them. Sometimes I imagine the Jews in the Holocaust, they might have been wondering, is God with us? But what happened straight after the Holocaust? They got brought back into the land. So here, God gives them this promise. They shall know that I, the Lord their God, am with them when he starts bringing them back. God keeps his promises. Humanly speaking, this is a miracle, right? I mean, Israel should no longer exist as a nation today. After almost 2,000 years in exile, scattered among all the nations of the world, basically, and persecuted almost continuously, severely, they should have, like many other nations in their position, just disappeared or been absorbed into the surrounding cultures. Their culture should be gone, but it's not. God preserved it. God kept them. And despite the best efforts of Satan to destroy them. In verse 31, God assures his people Israel. He says, you are my flock, the flock of my pasture. You are men, and I am your God, says the Lord God. So remember, this is at the time of judgment, and they're in captivity. And God gives them this beautiful promise. You are my flock. The flock of my pasture. You are men and I am your God, says the Lord God. Now, this is an awesome promise. You are the flock of my pasture. This is a blessed assurance. Despite all the disobedience and rebellion, they are still God's flock. And oh, the mercy and grace of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And never forget the promise given to the church in Hebrews 13.5. What did Jesus say? I will never leave you or forsake you. Okay? It's the same thing in verse 31 there. You are the flock of my pasture. I will never leave you. You will always be my sheep. That's the faithfulness of our beautiful shepherd, God. Verse 31, you are men and I am your God. And quote from David Guzik. This wonderful reminder assured Israel that even though they were like sheep, they were much more than sheep. They were men. Made in the image of God and capable of so much more than sheep. They needed to recognize their place as creatures, as men, and God's place as creator. I am your God. This was both their glory and their responsibility before God. Now, I just want to finish with an application. The promise of reward for faithful service. Now, King David, he lived a life that pleased God. He made some mistakes. We all do, right? But overall, his testimony, as we read before, was he is a man who loved God, a man who is after God's own heart, who would do what God asked him to do. 
That was his overall testimony in life. Now, as believers, we have the same opportunity, the same promise, to be used in a significant way in the millennial kingdom, helping Jesus to rule and reign over his kingdom. And there's a scripture in Matthew which you're probably familiar with, and it's talking about how we will be rewarded later. We work now and get reward later. So Matthew twenty five fourteen through 21. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man travelling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, and to each according to his own ability. Notice that, different abilities, different amounts given. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them, and made another five talents. And likewise he had received two gained two more also, but he had received one when he dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of these servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received the five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. And this is the key point. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So one day we will have to give an account to God for what he's given us. How we invested our time, our resources, our talents, our spiritual gifts. Have we invested that wisely into the kingdom of God? Will we have much to show? If we do, then, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So we will rule and reign with him. And everything we have now is what we're only stewards. We don't own anything. And it's important to understand that, right? We don't own anything. Our kids, our money, our houses, whatever. Cars. We don't own them. They're all given to us by God on loan. We're stewards. How are we going to use them? How are we using them? So, to put this really simply, the degree of our love and faithfulness to God in this life will determine what level of service will be given or responsibility and authority will be given in the next life. And especially during Jesus' millennial reign on the earth. So, to receive a full reward, I must be faithful to use my time, talents, spiritual gifts and opportunities for service in a way that glorifies God and not live for myself. So Second John verse 8, it says, Look to yourselves that we do not lose the things we have worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. I just want to go back to David. He made some bad mistakes. But what did he do? He repented and got back on the right track, yeah? What's important is that we finish well, and David finished well. And these verses in Corinthians just help explain this. 1 Corinthians three twelve through 15 from the Amplified Bible. But if anyone builds upon the foundation, which is Christ, whether it be with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay or straw, the work of each one will become plainly, openly known, shown for what it is. For the day of Christ will disclose and declare it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test and critically appraise the character and worth of the work each person has done. So God 
with his fiery gaze will look at us and in holiness, anything that's not holy, anything that's not pure, we burnt up. Verse 14, if the work which any person has built on this foundation, any product of his efforts, whatever, survives this test, he will get his reward. Notice that, he will get his reward. But if any person's work is burned up under the test, he will suffer the loss of it all, losing his reward, though he himself will be saved, but only as one who has passed through fire. So, again, we must make sure that we are living for God, not living for ourselves. Living for ourselves will cost us a lot in the coming kingdom. So, am I willing, like David, to surrender my will to God's, to be someone of whom God could say, He is a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. That's a good prayer that we can pray for ourselves. God, make me a man or a woman after your own heart. Make me someone who will do everything you ask me to do. If so, then like David, I will receive a glorious reward, ruling and reigning with Christ in his kingdom as Christ sees fit to use me. Whatever it will be, I don't care. But I know that the more faithful I am, the more reward I will receive and the more able I will be to enjoy eternity with Christ. However, if in this life I choose to live for myself, seeking my own pleasure, then yeah, I'm going to enjoy the worldly pleasures for a time. But I will miss out on my eternal reward. I will not be given the position of honor and service that I could have enjoyed for eternity. My capacity to enjoy eternity will be limited. We only have one chance to live this life. We must keep our eyes on the things above, the eternal things, and not be consumed and distracted by the things of this world. And in your own time, you can read Colossians chapter 3, verses 1-4. to To finish, I just want to quickly go through this testimony of C.T. Studd. Charles Thomas Studd. And I've got the reference where I got this from in your notes. He was born on December 2nd, 1860 in Spratton, United Kingdom, into a family of wealth and privilege. So here is this guy, C.T. Studd, born into a family of wealth and privilege. In 1883, he graduated from Trinity College, Cambridge, and in 1885 entered the missions field with Hudson Taylor in China. C.T. Studd spent his life in dedicated service to the Lord serving in China, India, and Africa. Now, I like this testimony. He was born into a family of wealth and privilege. What did he choose to do? He became a missionary, and he gave it all up. Serving in those countries in those days was not easy. He gave up a life of wealth and privilege and went to the mission field. It's not easy on the mission field. So that's the choice he made. Now, do you think he regrets that choice? He gave up a life of wealth and privilege to be a missionary. And this is the poem that he wrote. And I'm going to finish with this poem. Can we all stand and read this together? This is a really awesome poem that C.T. Studd wrote. Two little lines I heard one day. Travelling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life which will soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. 
Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then, in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes and fears, each with its days I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep, in joy or sorrow thy word to keep, faithful and true whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. O let my love with fervour burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes only one, now let me say, thy will be done, and when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. So Father, thank you for these beautiful promises in your scriptures, Lord. Lord, we mess up, we make mistakes, and we hurt each other, and muddy the waters and trample the grass, make life difficult for each other, but Lord, we just need to come back, we need to submit again, clothe ourselves with humility, submit to each other. And as sheep, we can build each other up instead of tearing each other down. Lord, I thank you for the good work that you are doing in this church. I pray that you will continue it. I pray that, Lord, we can learn the lessons from the children of Israel and we will not be proud. And when we are, we can repent. Lord, we know we're not perfect. We know we're going to make mistakes. And that's why the Bible has so much to say on forgiveness because sometimes our human nature will raise its ugly head and our selfish ambition and our pride will come to the front. But Lord, when it does, help us to receive the truth in love as people say, hey, what's going on? Why are you doing this? And I pray that yeah, we can just submit, repent, and Lord, those issues will be healed, those hurts will be healed, and the relationships will be stronger for it. So we just pray that you will help us to keep our eyes on the eternal things because there's only one life which will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. We'll stand before the judgment seat and as it says here, I'll know I'll say it was worth it all. So 
We're not going to regret anything we do for you down here, but we will regret anything we do for ourselves, which is selfish. So help us, Father, to keep these things in mind. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.